Hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Climate Stand with the Final Stand. Today, Yasha Sanai will be your host for the episode. We are joined by Professor Chaya Bharadwaj of OP Jindal Global University and we thank the professor for being here with us. Professor Chaya Bharadwaj is currently an assistant professor in the Jindal Global Law School and is an United Nations trained international lawyer. She completed a BA LLB from the Lloyd Law College in 2015. Thereafter, she was selected as an international scholar at the Environmental Law Center at the Vermont Law School to pursue her LLM in Environmental Law. After completing her LLM, she joined the Lord the Lloyd Law College as an assistant professor, wherein she founded the Environmental Law Center and served as its founding assistant director. She also started the International Migration Refugee Law Center at the Lloyd Law College. In 2018, she assisted Mr. Dierie Delardi at the United Nations Law Commission with his work on peremptory norms. of general international law she has received various awards like the united nations fellowship in 2017 to to attend the regional course in international law in 2018 she was awarded with the local pathways fellowship by the united nations sustainable development solutions network for a work in environmental education and youth empowerment in 2019 she was awarded with the junior scholar scholarship by the asian society of international law to attend the 7th asil biennial conference on international law She has also received the best research paper award from institutions like the Law Commission of India for her research in environmental law and international law. Apart from public international law, her interests are environmental law, information laws, international development, and international dispute settlement mechanisms. Professor Chaya Bhardwaj is also the faculty advisor and mentor for the Final Stand, this academic year. Today we will be discussing the topic of climate financing. So before we get into anything else, Professor, uh, could you just explain to us what climate financing is? Hi. Thank you for having me. Beginning with the topic of climate finance. Climate finance is a financial flow within or between countries that aim at climate action for both mitigation and adaptation. The sources of climate finance can be local, national, transnational, public or private. it can be availed as a grant loan co-financing from international banking organization uh, from funding institutions like the green climate fund etc today we have a large amount of finance that has been shared for climate action in the developing uh, countries however there remains a challenge of mobilization for climate finance we do not have access to uh funds as we are not able to uh mobilize funds for uh the climate financing institutions like the green climate fund today they are facing a challenge of uh collecting adequate funds to be able to share these funds with the developing countries or countries that need them the most uh, apart from this and in the wake of the challenge that uh, the countries are facing to mobilize climate funds countries have started experimenting in ways so that they can create sources of climate finance one of the examples of such innovate innovative experiments would be the green bond that was issued by fiji in 2017 Now when Fiji in 2017 had issued the green bond to raise climate finance or climate funds 
nobody was sure of the success of it. However, in 2017, it quickly was able to raise 50 million US dollars. Today, apart from Fiji, we also have Philippines uh, that launched not a green bond, but a blue bond in order to create sources of sustainable ocean finance. In COP26, Fiji announced a blue bond to create sources of sustainable finance in Fiji. All right. So how do you believe that this concept of uh, climate financing um, is related to human rights? Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. Uh, Today, it is widely and more generally accepted that climate change and human rights are interlinked. Um, it is said that climate change will be one of the biggest uh, violators or contributors to uh, human rights violations or protections of human rights. The area that looks at the protection of or the violation of human rights in the context of climate finance is a relatively new concept. And due to, its, due to the emerging nature of this concept, you, you would see that a lot of major climate financing institutions are currently integrating the issues of gender equality, human rights, social inclusion, protection of vulnerable groups in their financing and lending plans. For example, whenever a lending institution is challenging billions of dollars for climate action, it wants to see, at least in the agreement, that the vulnerable groups will be protected or gender equality will be ensured through this, pro through this project. For example, the Green Climate Fund has put a human rights compliance mechanism in place to ensure adherence to uh, the agreements between the fund's secretariats and project delivery agents. Generally, if the human rights norms are applied and delivered correctly, climate finance can guarantee and protect several human rights, including but not limited to right to life, right to health, right to indigenous people, right to water, right to sustainable housing, right to food. In October 2021, Green Climate Finance had supported a project for climate resilient food security in Micronesia, thereby supporting the right to food and other human rights in the country. One challenge, however, remains with, the, with this interconnection between climate finance and human rights. The challenge is that climate finance or climate financed projects will not always protect or promote human rights. An institution can extend finance for a project that aims at protecting the environment and human rights of people. However, whether that finance will protect human rights or violate human rights is not in the control of the financing institution, agencies, or lenders. Okay, one such example comes from the Indian state of Gujarat, where International Finance Corporation had financed Adani Group's coal-fired power plant with an assurance that the environmental, social, and governance standards, for short, the ESG standards, will be adhered to. However, even 
even though there was a guarantee by the adani group that it will ensure maintenance of the esg norms a group of fishermen and farming community approached the national courts in the united states claiming that the project took away their right to livelihood harmed the ecosystem biodiversity and the general environment uh, around them contributing to violation of their right to life in general this group approached the courts of the us and said that the world bank or the international finance corporation should take responsibility of the human rights violations of this community while many climate financing documents contain explicit provisions on protection of environmental social and governance standards and protection of human rights there is a need growing need to ensure a clear commitment to protect human rights during and after climate financing agreements and through this approach through in through a clear commitment and through an integrative approach one can make sure that climate financing is used to protect human rights is implemented to guarantee human rights instead of violations of these essential human rights thank you so much for giving us such an extensive background on the subject matter uh, professor the second question is why is a rights based approach towards climate financing the most appropriate way in initiating any sort of policy making or any sort of legislative action that exists in status quo today i believe uh, no single approach or me- mechanism will be sufficient to address the issues and challenges of climate change however what a human rights based approach can do is number one it can give a foundation to this human center the human driven challenge of climate change the problem is human centered it's anthropocentric and therefore a human centered human rights based approach will give it give the solution a solid foundation moving forward secondly a human rights based approach should be integrated with equity and accountability in order to ensure that there is translation of climate finance for sustainable development and protection of human rights thirdly why a human rights based approach is crucial or or one of the most important to approaching climate finance lies historically in the time when the indian fishermen approached the us courts to claim the world bank's responsibility for violations of their human rights around that time or since that time it can be said that there is a growing debate about responsibility of banking institutions and lenders for the projects that violate human rights cause environmental degradation and climate change there can be a lot of projects or currently there are examples of projects that were aimed at ensuring environmental protection in protection of humans and human rights however due to corruption delays and other challenges 
instead of protecting human rights, the projects ended up violating human rights. And therefore, uh, in order to grow solution-oriented action plan and policies, uh, we need to keep human rights as a foundational or core approach when understanding and addressing challenges arising out of climate finance. So, Prakasal, to what extent is climate financing currently crystallized under international law? And in what context and, for instance, what specific legal instruments has it, uh, has it been engaged in the past as well? Climate finance is a relatively new concept and it is not clearly defined under any international law instrument. However, Article 4 of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change mentions that the developed country parties to the UNFCCC are required to provide financial resources and support developing country parties in the wake of climate change through such financial resources. In 2018, the UNFCCC released a document saying climate finance uh, includes local, national, and transnational financing, which could be drawn from public, private, and alternative sources of financing. It also said that a financing that aims to support mitigation and adaptation action should be considered climate financing. So in terms of conceptualizing the, the phrase climate finance under international law, the concept is, hasn't clearly crystallized yet. However, one could say it is in the process of it is in the process of getting recognition and getting defined under international law. However, when it comes to the interlinkages between climate finance and human rights, this combined phrase is covered under many conventional and customary international law. For example, Paris Agreement in its preamble recognizes human rights obligation of states. Under core international human rights treaties, all states are under an obligation to protect and respect human rights of all human beings. They also have a responsibility to ensure development in general and economic, cultural, social development more specifically. Additionally, if we look at UN Charter, UN Charter talks about the responsibility of the states to create conditions of economic and social protection. If we look at the soft law in international law, we have Declaration on Right to Development that talks about fair distribution of benefits of development, which includes economic development, environmental development, etc. Under the umbrella of existing international human rights law arising out of Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all the core universal human rights treaties, the states have a responsibility to protect human rights of its citizens and sometimes non-citizens as well. And under this responsibility, while implementing climate finance in their own territories, the states should also ensure 
that the human rights are protected while they are implementing uh, climate finance projects. While international law covers the broad realm of climate finance and human rights and creates an obligation against the states, there is no obligation, or I would say it is difficult to say that there is an obligation against non-state actors. And this challenge remains in international law that obligations of human rights may be difficult to assert against non-state actors. One of the examples again would be in 2011, the Red Cross had raised billions of dollars to protect people in Haiti. Haiti had recently suffered an earthquake and the Red Cross Society wanted to build houses, wanted to ensure their right to housing, right to sanitation, um, right to livelihood. And in the report, they claimed that they created 150,000 houses in Haiti, guaranteeing several human rights. However, during an investigation, it was revealed that the actual number of homes that were built in Haiti were six in number. Now, this is an example where such human rights obligations, which are guaranteed by international law, may be difficult to claim against a specific entity due to uh, the exclusion of such entities from the general responsibility regime of international law. All right, Professor. So just to further explore um, India in particular with regard to recent developments in COP26, um, could you elaborate on the current status quo in India with regard to climate financing and how this was reflected in COP26? So India has recently in COP26 demanded for 1 trillion US dollars for climate finance, in climate finance. This is by far one of the largest uh, demands for climate finance by a country. The reason for growing needs of climate financing in 2021 has been witnessed, especially during COP26. And there are two primary reasons for it. Number one, the developing countries are at the front line of taking the heat because of climate change. They are, they are facing the consequences of climate change, including sea level rise, extreme weather events, and they do not have the capability to afford the consequences of climate change. And the second reason for an increasing demand in climate finance during COP26 was COVID-19. COVID-19 impacted economies in the way that could not have been otherwise predicted. The pandemic has led to an increase in the flow of climate finance in order to protect the most vulnerable communities around the world. Now, developing countries like India have been for decades victim of climate change that is essentially considered to be a consequence of the industrialized developed countries around the world. And while they are bearing the consequences right now, their capacity to finance uh, the con to finance the consequences to finance the solutions of adaptation and mitig mitigation is very less, and therefore there is an increasing 
increase in the uh, demand for climate finance and an increase in the flow of climate finance. Now at COP26, the trend, there, there were a lot of variety of trends that we saw. We saw countries coming up with innovative solutions in order to uh, ensure that they have adequate financial resources uh, to take actions of cl on climate change and protect the human rights of their own people. The example of such innovative idea is the launch of the blue bonds by Fiji in during COP26. Now there are other crowdfunding uh, ventures as well, which a lot of countries, including Fiji and Philippines, are looking at. They're looking at raising funds uh, through donors, uh, and they're looking to raise raising funds through crowdsource funding venues in order to finance their climate action. So we we saw a we saw a growing innovative trend in relation to how the countries are approaching climate finance. I think it is safe to say that in the growing years, climate finance would be crucial uh, for the developing countries to take action uh, in the wake of climate change. Countries need climate finance for adaptation action, mitigation action, for capacity building, technology transfer in order to protect their own people in the wake of sudden onset, extreme disaster, extreme weather events. So all of these collectively uh, combined with the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic and the negative effects of the pandemic on economies and people, climate finance will be one of the core issues, not only for negotiations, for uh, conference of parties to the Paris Agreement and UNFCCC, but also in bilateral and regional relations between the states. So 12 years ago at the United Nations Climate Summit in Copenhagen, countries made a significant pledge of wanting to, of a significant pledge slash commitment to meet a $100 billion financial commitment. So my first question is, do you think this commitment has been met? That has been almost, it's been a decade since this commitment to the global citizens has been made. Do you think it's been met? And second, if it's not been met, what do you think are the structural issues that are inhibiting the transfer to the poorest and the most underdeveloped countries in the world? The context of this question is simply that in 2020, 2 trillion has been the global expenditure only in the area of military. So what do you think this says about our priorities and how we understand climate change in terms of allocation of funding and other resources to fight it? Thank you for your question. I, I think you're correct when you say more than a decade ago, rich countries promised $100 billion to low-income and developing countries in order to aid them to take climate action, to adapt and mitigate the adverse effects of climate change. Today, this pledge remains unfulfilled, and this has left a gap. This gap is exacerbated due to various other factors that were not taken into consideration a decade ago. These factors include the 7.5 billion population, COVID-19, and rising extreme weather events that we see in 2021. Now, this may be likely that we may need more than $2 trillion to combat climate change 
And we should also refer to the fact that India itself has demanded more than $1 trillion for fulfillment of its own commitment under the NDCs uh, in COP26. Compared with the investment that is actually required today to combat climate change, $100 billion pledge is very minute. And these pledges, even though they are so minute, they, they have played a very uh, important role in highlighting the need for climate finance uh, to combat climate change. And these, these are good faith pledges that have laid the foundation for many climate financing funds uh, that we see today. Due to and apart from the unfulfilled pledge of $100 billion that we have today, there is a paucity of adequate climate finance. We recognize it, uh, that there is a paucity lack of adequate climate finance to meet 100% climate action or climate investment needs of the globe. Now, this paucity is a challenge uh, in addition to lack of accessibility to these funds. Now, globally, experts have widely acknowledged that developing countries face many difficulties to access money from global funds. Sometimes uh, sudden disasters trigger immediate or urgent need for funds. And developing countries do not always are able to access quick funds. Some other times, and most of the times, the procedure or the documentation required to access the funds can be daunting for developing countries. Uh, some of the uh, low-income developing countries do not even have the resources to understand the procedure and the documentation required to access these funds. Now, these funds do not acknowledge that the procedure that they think to be the standard procedure may not be followed in certain low-income developing countries, especially from the global south. Although there are certain accessibility and readiness projects, programs that are aimed at building capacity of the countries uh, for project development, for wider access to climate finance, there is a greater need for such programs in order to eliminate the structural challenges that we have um, that are limiting the transfer of climate finance to the poorest and most underdeveloped countries in the world. Other challenges to the actual transfer to the most poorest and vulnerable communities comes from within the countries. And these can include corruption, lack of climate finance, monitoring mechanisms, lack of accountability, lack of implementation, etc. Overall, I can say, while we need $100 billion in every other single dollar that we can get to uh, combat climate change and to take climate action, currently, there is a huge climate finance gap that can be filled, that, that need to be filled and that can be filled through a variety of sources. Thank you so much, Professor. Though you have touched a little bit upon uh, the general challenges that are faced, uh, what do you believe to be the biggest hindrances when it comes to local climate financing? Um, how do you believe that this impacts any potential for large-scale change? And is there any way in which we can ensure accountability and mechanisms by which we can prevent such hindrances? I, have, I had mentioned previously that climate finance is a new concept. Uh, but local climate finance is even newer than cl climate finance. 
local climate finance can be understood as locally available funds that are organized by local governments like the city councils or the county councils or state councils in india we do not have in government established uh, climate locally available climate funds but if we had one uh, we would know them to be as panchayat climate funds uh, for example if ever implemented in india although india has a national adaptation fund for climate change that has funded a variety of local indian climate resilient projects for livestock agriculture water management etc while these can be compared with local funds that are currently being established in kenya and mali uh, and these uh, are developing as good practices these are not totally comparable in tanzania in tanzania we have a pilot project that is uh, focused on establishing climate resilient planning institutions at the city level district level now there are several benefits of having local climate financing number 1 it supports communities to identify specific concerns that may have or specific challenges that they may have in the wake of climate change now these specific challenges or concerns can arise because of their geographic location for example a coastal community may have different challenges that they face because of climate change uh because climate change is causing sea level level rise for the coastal communities now this challenge is very different from a community living in a desert where they are facing extreme hot days or expansion of desert or desertification and their challenges or needs will be different now if there are locally available fi- financing organizations or local climate funds then these communities can be economically empowered to look solutions for the specific challenges that they are facing number 2 local climate funds can allow the communities to develop community focused resilient development thirdly this can also allow the communities to incorporate valuable local knowledge valuable indigenous knowledge uh, ancient knowledge that they may have about their own geographical area or the challenges that they face and incorporate them into a larger good practice implement it as well because now they will have economic funds to implement their practices lastly they can recognize different ways uh, of climate change impacts and they can also be in a position to empower most vulnerable communities which includes but is but is not limited to women marginalized groups children etc now today international research suggests that only 10% of international climate finance reaches the local government or communities and therefore there's a need to allow local financing or local funds to be established to combine a bottoms up approach with people centric approach and 
effectively utilize financial resources, not just for economic development, but also for sustainable development. There is a trend to build funds through uh, crowdfunding as well for various purposes, ranging from education, health, etc. And today, we can also see crowdfunding used for climate mitigation measures. Now, crowdfunding can be one of those sources of local climate finance to fund local climate action. As for your accountability question, how can one ensure accountability on climate finance at various levels? I would like to highlight that at the global level, at multilateral or bilateral uh, funding mechanisms, there are already mechanisms at place uh, which allow for accountability and evaluation of projects that are funded by multilateral uh, donors or bilateral donors. These mechanisms include, uh, for example, individual evaluation of the implementation of a project on the basis of human rights guarantees. Now, such evaluation uh, is conducted by independent, nonpartisan uh, entities, individuals or organizations who evaluate if the project was well implemented or not. Now, these are certain accountability measures that are already in place. At the local level, I believe the local laws and policies can be utilized in order to, in order to ensure accountability arising out of climate finance. Currently in India, there, there's no concrete case study where I can say that the lenders held project implementers accountable or a banking institution held an accountability process for a project, a climate finance, finance project that they may have financed in the past. Although there are rules developing, uh, under the Securities Board of India, where they are looking at the responsibility of lenders and the responsibility of banking institutions in case, in case an entity declares himself or herself bankrupt and in case a banking institution has financed the project. So there are some rules that are developing at the domestic level in India right now. For uh, accountability mechanisms in other countries, one may look at how the rules govern accountability mechanisms between lenders and donors in their countries. Generally speaking, I can say, at least for India, that for human rights violations, there are uh, measures one can take a judicial recourse to the Supreme Court of India or the high courts in India. Although even that is restricted only to state authorities, however, this looks like a potential judicial recourse that one may take in order to ensure uh, accountability for climate finance projects in India. Professor, thank you so much. I do also want to ask you about any potential sources that we could look for, anyone that would be interested in reading more about climate finance, whether pertaining to India or in general, what would you recommend in that sense? One could look at the UNFCCC website on climate finance, uh, also the United Nations Environmental Programs website on climate finance. There's a book on climate finance theory and practice, uh, which one could look at. 
there are readily available sources in public domain which can inform an individual about climate finance if one is interested in it i just have one recommendation which is for those interested in the theory and practice of climate finance they should read theory of change because that is considered to be the theoretical bedrock of climate financing in practice so even the practitioners uh, they recommend reading and understanding theory of change while understanding how climate financing works thank you all right professor thank you so much thank you professor chaya for taking out the time to engage and interact with us on an extremely important issue of climate financing and its intersections human rights we hope our listeners had an insightful session and we hope to see you in the upcoming sessions of the climate stand with the final stand